Well, hello and welcome to Shut Off That Noise. I'm Craig Riddock. And today I'm going to be talking with my good friend Rebecca Burton about an article for which I contributed some illustrations. It's an article entitled Playing the Long Game, Some Pros and Cons of Working Collaboratively by Rebecca Burton. It's going to be featured in the spring issue of Canadian Theatre Review. Well, hello, Rebecca. Hello, Craig Riddock. <laughs> How are you this evening? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Excellent, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, let me jump to where I come from in, the, in terms of my sense of collaboration and what I've done to collaborate, and it's mostly been in the world of music. And it's had its successes and its failures, and I think as a songwriter, I've wanted to kind of run the show sometimes. And in other cases, I've found that it was really great to sort of sit back and just give a little piece of myself and let everyone else also give a little piece of themselves. So that's where I sort of understand uh, collaboration, to just make it simple. Um, how did this, first of all, how did, how did this article come about for you? And why were you asked to do this, particularly you? Okay, so the editor of this particular issue is Donna Michelle St. Bernard. And she originally approached me and asked if I would just write a pros and cons list of the advantages and disadvantages of working collaboratively specifically to move issues forward. So where this was coming, I think, in part um, is that I was co-leading an umbrella group called Equity in Theatre, of which she uh, was on the steering committee. So um, I believe that's why she approached me. What is it that makes you an expert on collaboration? Ah. I don't know that I am an expert, but I do like to work collaboratively, and I have been doing so in various facets for quite some time. Uh, my particular background is in theater. So uh, theater itself is almost always a collaborative art form, where you need designers, directors, actors, all sorts of people collaborating together. But beyond that, my own interests have often uh, culminated around feminist theatre practices. So um, feminist theatre often tries to draw on collective structures, uh, which is sort of a, a particular, I don't know, antidote to hierarchical structures. So collectives tend to try to share power, to decentralize power. So um, that's something that I've been very interested in. I've worked in a number of um, theatrical groups that have operated in that manner and most especially feminist theater troops or devised pieces um, not always feminist but often tell me a bit about your theater background <laughs> specifically in relation to collaboration yes Okay, so uh, I mentioned that I've worked with various feminist theater collectives, um, and that goes all the way back to my BA. Um, when I did my master's, I worked with uh, Hope McIntyre as a director who got a number of actors together, and we created a piece called The Prostituted Muse. So it was all about... Um, Actors, actresses, we would say, um, from the past, and created this piece together. I played Sarah Siddons, who is a, a 19th century English actress. And uh, so that's one project where you just have a bunch of actors get together. Uh, they devise the work on their feet, so through various improvs and games, some script writing, but not so much. 
continued to work in that vein. I worked with uh, Holof Theater and Clay and Paper Theater, which is giant puppets in the park. And we created one piece, so this would be Holof, I guess, Holof Theater, called Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is uh, the oldest story we have, recorded story. So we created that collectively. And uh, just to give you one more example, I was involved in something... Um, during my PhD years, which we uh, called The Femme Collective, very original. And we worked together for two years. We did two different shows, one each year. And that was where we, I got to really dig into that stuff. Um, the whole purpose of the group was to uh, work with theory and practice. So there's this huge body of feminist theater performance all over the map, um, we'd done a lot of reading about it, and then we wanted to try to put it into practice. Does this stuff even work? So um, our first show was called Bill's Ladies, and we each chose sort of our, uh, a Shakespearean character and created a piece around that, and then we strung those pieces together, as is often the case with collectively devised work, um, with a little bit of a, a narration. The second year we created... Um, a similar idea. There was three pieces that time. We each created our own piece, but they were much more forcefully, uh, not forcefully, uh, more appropriately strung together and hung together with a backbone narrative that the fourth person contributed. So that's just a little bit um, theater practice-wise. I've also been involved um, in various student unions, uh, planning committees of uh, all kinds, theater, politicals, you know, student unions. Oh, she said which, that twice. Um, if not working collectively, definitely work collaboratively, and you deal with a lot of the same issues and questions. So in one case, we have a group of people who want to uh, affect political change, for instance. In the other case, we have a group of people who want to make a piece of performance art. Um, what, are the, what are the differences going on there? Well, I guess the primary difference would probably be in the end goal. So uh, with a theatrical, practical adventure, you're trying to create an artistic product. Um, After reviewing the show, Rebecca wanted to remark that Theatrical practical ventures are not necessarily about product. Certainly, feminist theater practice is not about product. Rather, it's usually about process. In the case of the Femme Collective, we were driven by particular theories and trying to put those theories in practice. But there was no um, final set agenda that we wanted to accomplish X beyond the creation of this piece that we could experiment with, but also affect and reach out to people in some way. When you're working with a committee or a particular political agenda, uh, generally speaking, you have a very set idea of what it is you want to accomplish. And, uh, you know, it's usually a very um, goal-oriented task. So we want to, you know, X. <laughs> Maybe this is not actually a huge difference because both, both things have an end goal. Um, I guess the difference is, whereas with the artistic piece, you're hoping to affect people emotionally, maybe have an impact on them that way, that maybe they will go out and do something and change lives. Um, with a political group, when you're trying to affect change that way, um, you're trying to get people immediately involved, and if not in the group, then working on the issue, signing petitions or, or whatever the action is, um, 
So again, also an immediate response, but I guess you're trying to involve people more directly and wholeheartedly, more actively, so that they too take up that banner and continue that cry. I see. Well, clearly you've been through, uh, you've been involved in a lot of different circumstances that involve collaboration. So what I'd like to find out is from, from these varied experiences you've had in collaboration, what makes it work well? I want to get to your list of pros and cons at some point. We'll get to that. But what I'm really interested into is what have you gleaned from all of this? What makes it work? What, what, uh, what, what is the right personality type? What is, what is the etiquette? Well, I don't know that there is a right personality type, but there certainly is, um, or there are some basic skills. So I think the most difficult thing is the people politics. So you're working with a group of people. You don't necessarily all have to get along and love each other, but you do have to be able to work together. So if you have a lot of big personalities in the group um, who are used to kind of running the show, maybe they're dominating or domineering, that can be a difficult situation. If, there can be very uh, active, forceful personalities who can still uh, sit back and listen and um, collaborate with other people. So that's really the most important thing that I've discovered is it really depends on the individual people who are involved and whether or not they're amenable to working with other people <laughs> in a really open, honest, sort of easy way. So have, have you formulated any sort of etiquette that is necessary to function in a collaborative group? I don't know about etiquette per se, but I have definitely um, concluded that there are a few things that are necessary. So one, you know, you need the right group of people. It's, it, it depends on you and your project and the relationships in the group. So that's really important. Um, perhaps as important as that, I was going to say maybe more important, but definitely as important, is the division of labor and how you approach your collective or your collaboration. Uh, it can be very different. It can be hierarchical. It can be non-hierarchical. You can have divisions of labor. You can share the responsibilities. But all these things really need to be set out up front. Yes, so the division of labor is really crucial. Um, that that's worked out beforehand. And I think that this is the most important thing that gets groups into trouble. Um, oftentimes you think you go in with an understanding and then when the work comes down the pipe, um, sometimes you find that actually that understanding didn't work out so well or maybe it needs to be revamped because it's very important that the workload is shared in an equal sort of way, whatever equal means to you. That, that can um, not necessarily mean everyone does the exact same thing or it can. <laughs> but I think that that is really the crucial um, step for making a collaboration work. You need to have terms of reference or you need to have a division of labor. Um, or if there is no division of labor, then you need to know how work is going to be handled and in what way. I think that is the most important thing that helps you avoid problems down the road once you're really into the group and trying to get the work done. You don't want to be dealing with really basic elements like who does what. Well, let's get down to the list that you made in the article. Now, it's interesting how you've laid it out. There are six pros and six cons, and they've been kind of set up in the, 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 the layout of the article itself that they sort of bounce back one from the other. Now, could you explain a bit of, about the logic of that? Are they mirror opposites? Are they six mirror opposites? or They're not exactly mirror opposites, but they're um, thematically linked, <laughs> I guess, in, in many ways. 
Okay. Um, I say at the top of the article that this is um, a best and worst case scenario when we do the pros and the cons here, that this is like the best when the pros are like the best case scenario and the cons are the worst case scenario. So this isn't going to happen in, in any or every collaboration, okay. but all of these are possibilities. All right. Okay. Well, let's walk through the list because I find it's interesting how they do mirror each other. So the first pro and con is that there is strength and unity, but it's slow going. So let's talk about the strength and unity. Yeah, sure. I think um, that's probably the most obvious one, that when a group of people come together and try to create something or make something happen, that often that the power to do so and the strength behind the initiative is stronger if there's a group of people involved as opposed to just one individual. And of course, I use that fam- uh, famous Margaret Mead quote here. I personally love it. I have it on a postcard that sits by my desk. Uh, it says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Indeed. Yes. Now, slow going... Um, I'd say that's probably the number one complaint about working collaboratively or collectively is that it can be a really slow, painful process. And this is especially true with something like a theatrical creation if you're trying to create a work of art. Um, Oftentimes you find that you have to sit around, you have to talk a lot. So anytime ideas are put forth, depending on how your collaboration or your collective is set up, perhaps you've set it up that you need uh, buy-in and agreement from everyone in the group. So that means that every single decision, every single issue has to be discussed, you know, laid out. So everybody has to show up as another thing. I think that's that's something I always felt with yeah. collaboration was that um, just trying to get everybody in the same room at the same time or to be able to say yes to shows, you know, the mm. va- people's availability and such. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a given. I don't even address here. You start with the assumption that, yes, everyone's going to show up and be there. But that's a huge thing is trying to schedule, you know, 14 people to for one block of time. It can sometimes be the most challenging aspect. Absolutely. So that's slows things down right there doesn't it? that can slow things down what other things slow slow the process um, down like i said once you're in the room um you might have an idea put forth that everyone loves except for one person and that one person speaks out against that idea you're going to have to spend a good deal of time either convincing that person to come around to the same point of view as the other seven people or to compromise or agree to it or perhaps that person's going to convince the other seven of you that actually that idea is not so strong, then you're going to have to go somewhere else. So if that's happening with every single thing you do, it can take a really long time. A lot of lobbying and discussing and trying to win people over going on involved. Yeah. Uh, Secondary to the actual just doing the thing that you're trying to get to. Exactly. I see. Well, that is definitely slow going. Um, well, on to the next one, I guess that leads to it, is there's a greater, greater potential for new ideas and solutions versus a greater potential for loss of focus. Mm. Well, I can definitely see that, and you're already sort of speaking about that, where it's like every new idea and solution brought forth by each of the many members needs to be voiced and entertained for a while in the <laughs> conversation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the pros, the plus sides of that is that when you have many different minds working on a problem or issue, you can sometimes come up with 
innovative solutions or hybrid ideas that a single individual probably would not have thought of on his or her own. But you get a bunch of people in the room, firecracking off of each other. You can get really interesting uh, new ideas coming to the fore. That, as you said, though, has a flip side con, um, which is you can experience a complete lack of focus. There might be so many ideas in the room, and one takes you to something else, which takes you to something else, which takes you to something else, and suddenly you are so far away from the original idea or um, issue that you were looking at uh, that that can be really problematic as well. It is hard to stay on task, <laughs> hard to remember what your primary objective is, and to really stick to that and not lose focus with too many ideas. Or maybe one bad idea being brought forth by a very <laughs> well-spoken and charismatic individual that can sway things yes. and maybe actually sort of rock the boat or actually even sort of derail things, right? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. So this goes back to the big personalities, right? Mm-hmm. Loud, charismatic people can be a real problem in a collaboration. <laughs> if they're not really attentive to other people's uh, wishes and feelings and they're not active listeners at the same time, yeah, that can be a definite problem. Loud, pushy, charismatic, well-spoken, and bored could also be a real bad recipe for disaster. It's like, oh, come on, guys. Let's finish this up. Like, let's just do it my way. Yes. You know, that's probably kind of a nightmare situation. So here you say that there's an approved chance of finding the best response. Mm-hmm. Now, that could be argued, and then danger of too much compromise. Well, let's stick on improved chances of finding the best response. Why does a collaboration improve your chances of finding the best response? So it's uh, pretty much related to the last one, that you have this greater potential for new ideas and solutions. But again, it has to do with having many different people in the same room together. So if you're used to working with one other person and always that same person, you probably you often um, start to think alike. You know what the other person's going to say. You can kind of think up the same ideas. If you have a room full of disparate people coming from completely different disciplines or different classes or different genders, like depending on the issue and the problem, um, you can come up with brand new ideas that never would have been thought of and perhaps the best possible solution. Because you'll have one person suggest something, maybe someone suggests something off of that, and you're just firecracking off of each other's ideas. And I have been in the room where this has led to just brilliant moments of inspiration that I don't think I ever would have gotten to on my own or by myself without a group of other people. Danger of too much compromise. That sounds, that's an interesting one. So I I guess it's going to take a special bunch of individuals to all kind of step back and not step on each other's toes. But what an awful situation to find yourselves in where you've just all compromised way too much and ended up with something watered down and thin and wishy-washy. Uh, am, I, am I on the right track here with what exactly, you're talking about? Exactly, exactly. That's a real danger, too. So say you have a group of people who are really great working together, <laughs> and they want to listen, they want to be attentive, they want to take everyone into consideration. Um, sometimes in the effort to find compromise, to find common ground, to get to agreement in the room, everything just gets watered down so much that, again, you lose your primary focus and your aim and what it was you wanted to accomplish. There is a feminist theater company in British Columbia, a group of women that works together, and their motto is no compromise, ever. They don't 
compromise. So either your idea has to be brilliant enough that you can get everybody else in the room in agreement, or you got to let it go if you cannot get other people to come around to your idea. Because in that particular situation, in their division of labor, in their approach, there is no compromise allowed. That's their way of keeping their idea strong and forceful and effective. Sometimes, too, it can go farther than just having um, a good idea watered down or you know this loss of focus. It can actually lead to complete paralysis in a group if there's like this real attempt to find the common ground on every issue and every time um, it can just lead to a completely ineffectual group that will accomplish nothing just this really mediocre middle of the road nothing new nothing innovative nothing exciting because everything's just compromise 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 so there is there is a danger (laughs) of too much compromise when you're working in collaborative situations Okay, here's our next point. A stronger possibility of success versus the possibility of competing agendas. Okay, so that's uh, mm-hmm. tell me about why you feel there's a stronger possibility of success in a collaboration. And now this and is this this relating specifically to um, the, the the first sentence of the your sort of first sentence of the article which really is about putting issues forth, right? And and uh um, or is or is that general to all collaborations like making art making and this uh, when I when I wrote that that was specifically in reference to a group of people trying to enact some kind of socio political change right for yes, sure okay. so um, it could apply as well to an artistic project if you've um, circumvented the danger of too much compromise and loss of focus and all of that stuff. You know, it's, it's, the pro is related to the best response, the new ideas, um, all of that. It just increases the possibility of success. So the example I use in the article comes from Equity in Theatre again, um, which I don't know, I didn't explain that at all. Perhaps I should take a moment and okay. explain what that is. Please do. So Equity in Theatre um, is an umbrella organization that brought together, or attempted to anyways, all of the major stakeholders in the theater industry. So we have the Playwrights Guild of Canada at the table representing the playwrights. We have the Professional Association of Canadian Theaters, PACT, at the table representing the theaters, artistic directors. Uh, we have Canadian Actors' Equity representing directors and actors. We have something called LMDA Canada, which represents literary managers and dramaturgs. We have the Associated Designers of Canada, Canada, representing the designers. Um, Then we also have um, a few other groups who are representing what we could call the more marginalized people in the industry. So, for instance, there's um, CIPAMO, which stands for Cultural Pluralism Arts Movement Ontario. There's the Ad Hoc Assembly. There's IPA, which is the Indigenous Performing Arts Alliance. There are play development centers at the table as well, like Pat the Dog. And there's also um, DMAC, Disabled, Deaf, and Mad Artists Alliance of Canada. So we brought all these groups to the table to try to um, make a dent in the problem of underrepresentation in the industry for women. 
because there is a problem where now, for instance, at the Playwrights Guild, over 50% of our membership is female, yet when it comes to annual productions in the country at large, we're finding that uh, women playwrights are getting about one quarter of the productions, 25% around there. So even though the numbers are evenly matched, they're not getting evenly matched numbers of professional productions. Um, this has a trickle-down effect in many areas, a significant one being money. So there are all sorts of problems in theater with gender and also the underrepresentation of other marginalized communities, such as people of color, people with disabilities, uh, indigenous, indigenous people, LGBTQ community as well, so, and women. So these are five communities that we realize are underrepresented and often marginalized. So, long story to explain that we brought uh, these groups together to one table, created this umbrella organization called Equity in Theatre, and initiated a number of projects and ways of dealing with this problem to try to put a dent in it. So to come back to your question of stronger possibility of success, so here's something where we really, we need to change the system <laughs> from the top down. So this is not something that one person can do alone. One person can create a project. It might be amazing. They might get great traction, social media presence. But this is an example where the, the stakeholders all need to be directly involved. So we have a greater possibility of success if all those people are at the table, if all those organizations are working on the problem. Um, my quote that I use in the article is that no one person can change the system, but if everyone works together from within and without, then change is more than possible. It's inevitable. Excellent. Wow, I wish we'd ended on that, but uh, we'll have to come up <laughs> with something as snappy as that when we get around to the end. All right. So we're talking about the stronger, stronger possibility of success and then the downside of that, the possibility of competing agendas. So this, I guess, goes back to people politics again, right? Absolutely. And um, especially if you're working with organizations with the situation that I just uh, described with equity in theater, oftentimes different groups of people or different organizations, they have um, different agendas and they're often competing agendas. So what is good for one group isn't necessarily good for another group. So if those two groups are trying to work together towards a common solution how do you meet in the middle <laughs> and find the best way to do that so that can it can really lead to uh, significant problems if you can't find the solutions and the way to get around that worst case scenarios i've seen like tension go to animosity to hostility to infighting to the complete disintegration of a collective and you know nothing <laughs> can be accomplished needless to say under those circumstances. Yeah. Capitalizing on people's strengths. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very cool. That's very cool. And I think we can all see that on, our, in our, on a perfect world, on a perfect day, in a perfect collaboration. Everyone shows up and it's like, I can do this. Well, I can do that. And I can do that. <laughs> and everyone gets together in this perfect geometry. And Exactly. So that's a, that's, that's a perfect world scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it's not always about um, skill sets that people arrive with that they already have. Sometimes it's an interest level. So if you have someone who's just really keen and really interested in a particular angle, um, often that's enough. But that's sometimes more than enough. You can have all the skills you need, but if you don't have the interest and you're not eager to really work on that, 
you're probably not going to do as good a job as the person who's really intrigued by that and uh, has a strong desire to work on it. So yeah, if you can get a group of people together and you can um, coordinate tasks to align with people's interests and their skill sets and their training and their background, you can end up with a really effective, great group of people. Well, we already kind of covered people politics because that was kind of the the counter to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess probably the big thing now, and, and we've already sort of touched on it too, is uh, the workload, uh, um, and that it can go one of two. It can go either way. It can either safeguard against burnout or it can increase burnout. That's the, and I find that that last one on the list is very very interesting. So. Tell me, tell me about the two scenarios where the where the fork in the road happens. Yeah, well, this deals. I mean, it comes right back to the people politics in the last con as well. So, on the con side, if you were uh, sorry, the pro side, if you're working with a really great group of people, your division of labor is clear. Everyone knows what they're doing and how they're going about it. Um, it can be a really positive, fantastic experience. You know, I've been doing a lot of advocacy work for some time now, and people always will often ask, you know, how do you safeguard against burnout? Because that's a very common problem for activists. Um, burnout, you know, you work on a problem for 10 years, you don't see anything changing, you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, you just give up eventually. I have found that it's other people who keep me going. So if you have a great group, uh, collective or collaborative group with really fantastic people, you feed off of their energy and um, what they're doing, and that in itself can keep you going. So that really helps protect against the burnout. As you mentioned, the con is it can increase your burnout. And this is the people politics again. If you have a scenario where one or two people are essentially carrying the group and doing all of the work, they're going to get burnt out. They're going to feel angry. (laughs) They're going to get hostile eventually. You can kind of go on like that for a little while, but not for not for a prolonged amount of time. It's not a sustainable model if only one person or a few people are carrying the group. And then that leads to even more severe burnout and animosity sometimes. So, yeah, that's a definite negative situation there. Did I forget to tell you that this episode is longer than 30 minutes? I guess I did. Does collaboration get more and more difficult with the, the increasing size of the group? Is it easier to collaborate with four people than 14? It's going to depend on the people in the room. But yes, I think smaller groups are more manageable. It's just less voices that you have to listen to and be attentive to. Um, but again, if you have the right group of people, if they're all really unified in their goal and their vision, if they get along well, um, if they have that sort of skill set of, of um, being amenable with other people, then a group of 14 can maybe get more work done. So, you know, it's always a depends. It's a case-by-case scenario. We talked about um, dealing with the people politics and how... Um, you know, forceful personalities in the room and all of that mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say um, that that's often the circumstance that kills a collective. Like work can still get done, <laughs> but then oftentimes your collective isn't or your collaboration isn't um, working in a truly collaborative fashion. So sometimes there are people who will come in and they're not even aware of it. They will just have their personality. They want to present an opinion. They do so in a forceful manner. 
Um, there's a lot written on this, especially between genders um, and how that can work. I've seen it a lot of times in collaborations when men and women are working together. Again, it's a huge generalization, but oftentimes um, the way men communicate is different and it's more of a competing sort of thing. So you say your idea, someone cuts you off with their idea, and it's sort of this competition of ideas and, and you're trying to get it all out there. They say that women, um, when they're communicating, it tends to be more about um, an exchange of information that you're just sharing with each other. <laughs> there doesn't necessarily have to be a point and a purpose beyond the sharing. So oftentimes when you bring different communities together and their communication styles are different, that can be really problematic. So sometimes a good starting point in the room is to um, kind of have some exercises or some ideas or some discussion uh, that lays some ground rules about how everyone functions in the room. So, because you asked about etiquette earlier, and that's a starting point that I always use. Very first meeting, first day in the room, everybody together creates a list of etiquette rules that um, should you know, should be respected. And sometimes they're really basic, such as no cell phones in the room or um, no interrupting people <laughs> or no idea is stupid, you know, things like that. So after everything we've been talking about, after this long list of pros and cons and, f you know, from all the experience that you've gathered, what side of the argument do you fall on? Collaboration or not collaboration? Hmm. Well, um, I definitely fall on the side of collaboration. So my pros and cons are evenly numbered in the article, but um, I definitely prefer to work with collaborative methods and approaches because I feel that they are stronger in the end, um, especially if you're tackling something that involves systemic change. You just cannot change a system <laughs> or an entire ideology or way of life by yourself. You can really only do that with other people. So, yes, I definitely come down on the side of being supportive of collaboration, and I think that's a great way to go. Um, yeah, you just have to be really patient and know that you've got to talk through a lot of stuff, everything, <laughs> and you've got to be super organized and efficient. You know, there are a lot of challenges, but I think the rewards in the end are definitely worth it. And as I said, especially if you're in it for the long game. So with something like uh, women's rights, I mean, it's been 50 plus years, well, a lot longer than that, but, you know, for the, the contemporary movement. And, uh, yeah, it's just going to take a huge collective effort to make it happen. So I think in that sense, collaboration has a lot to offer. Okay, well, there you go. Well, I'm telling you from my experience that I'm not really ready to get into a rock band anymore because that kind of collaboration is a mess. But uh. definitely what you're talking about in politics and social issues, I'm definitely there with you on that. So thanks very much. That's been very illuminating for me and giving me a lot to, to consider. So thanks very much, Rebecca. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca Burton about collaboration. I know I did. It was kind of fun to have my girlfriend <laughs> on my show and uh, celebrate her brainy, wonderful beauty and intelligence. Next week, I'm going to be speaking with, well, it's actually not next week. To be honest, I've been really messing up the timing of these uh, podcasts. Uh, 
I don't want to go into a long story, but my life is a little bit of a mess right now in terms of trying to make money and get my life together and put a roof over my head. And this podcast doesn't do anything at all to increase my wealth. It's actually a big commitment and a lot of time, and I really wish I could put more into it for you all, but that's just not how it is right now. Anyways... This weekend, I'm going to be speaking with poet Damian Lopez. He's a good old friend of mine. He uh, was the poet laureate of the city of Barrie. And the reason I'm having him on the show, well, April is Poetry Month, International Poetry Month, in fact. And before it's over, (laughs) before I run out of time, I better have him on here. He's going to read some of his work. He's uh, appearing at an event uh, tomorrow, and he's going to record some of that for us. Um, So we're going to do a little bit of a 50-50 split. We're going to talk about the importance of poetry, and we're going to talk about Damien's love of poetry. And the best part of the whole show is that he's going to do some readings for us. So stay tuned for that on the next episode of Shut Off That Noise. For now, I'm Craig Riddock, and you've been listening to Yeah, Shut Off That Noise. See you next time.